So good for me, bad for you. The clock is broken in the back, so I absolutely have no idea. Right now it's 12.10. I know it's not 12.10, which means we are on eternity time, which is fantastic. Hope you brought a snack. Uh, I do have my phone here, but my phone sometimes uh, makes weird noises, so if you hear, that's my phone, but I'll, I'll at least try to figure out what time it is every once in a while. So I am, by nature, for those of you who know me as your pastor and if you have visited, I, by nature, am an exhorter. I'm an encourager. I'm an exhorter. My preaching style tends to lean towards trying to motivate you to jump out of your chair and change the world. That's just kind of what I like to do. And then secondly, I'm a pastor, which means that if I'm not doing that, I'm trying to uh, reach you emotionally so that you connect emotionally with God. Uh, Those are the primary ways that I'm motivated as a communicator. For those of you who agree with me, don't say anything. I'm just, I don't want any feedback. No, I'm just kidding. Um, That's who I am. Uh, But there are times when we need, and and in the context of that, there's always um, teaching. But this morning, I'm going to put, I'm going to take off my exhorter pastoral hat, and I'm going to put on my doctrinal teacher hat. It's not my primary um, strength, but at times, you need to hear from me as your pastor and your exhorter uh, what we believe as a church. We are an exciting time. You just heard about uh, some changes that are happening in Brighton. Uh, you've heard about some changes that are happening here uh, with, uh, with what's going on with John Prickett, but we're also a, at a moment in time as a church where we are initiating, uh, we have initiated conversation with some people in our church to invite them to consider to be elders in our church. And in the context of uh, installing elders at a, in our church, we also touch on a doctrinal issue that it, over the course of history has been a thorny issue for the church and that is the issue of women in ministry. And so I'm going to try to very quickly, and I'm already taking longer time on this intro than I have allotted myself because I've timed myself and this is too long. But I'm going to try to, in a brief amount of time, or at least in a brief amount of time in accordance to what I'm trying to cover, tackle the issue of eldership in our church for you as well as this issue of women in ministry. Amen? Have I got your attention? All right. So... Uh, I want to present to you our desire to install elders this month. And I'm also going to do quite a bit of reading. So if you're not used to me reading, um, get used to it this morning. I'm going to introduce to you the topic of elders here at the beginning of my conversation. And I'm going to spend a lot of our time talking about women in ministry because that tends to be the issue that's a little bit more um, controversial. In light of church governance... The two prevailing modes of governance that the church usually operates under within the context of the church universal is um, eldership and then a congregational run uh, church. And both of them have their, their strengths and their weaknesses. Uh, the strength of a congregational run church is that, uh, in theory, uh, the church is equal in its representation in regards to deciding issues of the church. Therefore, on many Um, important issues within the church, the church will vote. And and as a result, the the congregants feel like that they are, in in some senses, have some authority in regards to the direction of the church. However, practically growing up in a Baptist church, oftentimes those votes are few and far between, and that the leadership of the church, even though it's described as congregational, oftentimes is still led 
primarily by a pastor, its staff, and the deacons. Um, and uh, uh, so that's that form of congregational rule. The other, the other, the other kind of church uh, governance is eldership, which we believe uh, finds its precedent in Scripture, um, and is more of a uh, an elder run, meaning like there are specific people in the church that are appointed by uh, the the pastor and or the church planter or outside elders uh, to lead the church, and so. Uh, the church governance, uh, as far as direction, doctrine, discipline, teaching, uh, and, and oftentimes primary pastoral care is, is initiated by elders and then along with that, their staff. Alexander Strzok, in his book, Biblical Eldership, says it this way, elders lead the church, and you'll see scriptural references, I think we have this, yeah, uh, alongside of it that you can look up later if you want to. They teach and preach the word. They protect the church from false teachers, exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine, visit the sick and pray, judge doctrinal issues. In biblical terminology, elder shepherd, overseers lead and care, oversee, lead and care for the local church. The way it has been done in this church is that I, as the lead pastor, have been covered in authority on the outset of starting this church by an outside eldership or outside advisory board. And then when the church gets to a place when it can self-govern by generating its own qualified set of elders, then that transfer of leadership is handed over to the elders of the church. Since the beginning of Antioch Waltham, we have been under that structure, and I, along with a team of leaders, which we have called up until this point advisory board members internally, have pretty much done the job of eldering. And we're actually very due to have this conversation to formalize the process of establishing these advisory board members as elders in our church. And they have done what I just read about. They have led with me in areas of direction, doctrine, and discipline. They have taught in this church, and they have been mobilized to pray for the sick. Uh, those advisory board members over the course of the history of our church have been David Pucci, Michael Landers and Dan Minnick, when they were here at the church, were advisory board members. Charlie Halley was an advisory board member. Brian Marcioni, um, those have been our advisory board members. And um, David Pucci presently still serves in that capacity along with myself. As I read this next passage of Scripture, it talks about elders. So I just talked to you about what their role is within the church, but I, I, now I'm going to read a passage of Scripture that talks about the qualifications for an elder. I also want you to notice that the very first part of this qualification section begins with whoever aspires or longs to be over an overseer desires a noble task. I want you to hear that because I truly believe that it's the goal of every person in the church to aspire to a level of character and fellowship of the Lord that if asked to be an elder, you would be qualified if you've walked with the Lord for a time being. You'll see why I said that, because at the, end, at the end of this passage, it says, not a new convert. But if you've had the opportunity to mature and walk with Jesus, I want you to be a candidate as an elder. When we talk about adding elders, I want to go, man, we have 100 candidates. Who do we choose from? Um, instead of, ah, I think we have a couple, you know, that could be elders. So when we read this list of elders, and I don't think there's just a couple in the congregation, by the way. I was just using that as a, like, an illustration. We want to aspire to be elders. So read with me, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Here's a trustworthy saying. 
Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of his church, of God's church? He must, be, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So, as a result of function and qualification, it narrows our search for people who have this character that Timothy, or Paul is describing to 1 Timothy, and the capacity, the function that we see in Scripture to lead the church. Here at Antioch, we value also the balance of staff as well as lay leaders in the eldership. Uh, we believe that having this blend uh, allows us to gain perspective as an elder team on the daily function of the church and also the common perception and needs of the life of a lay person. In a sense, we, we strike to have this balance of being able to lead from the tower as well as on the ground. Are we getting good perspective in all areas of our church's leadership? And so when you hear uh, me present the candidates at the end of this morning for eldership, we have thought about uh, both staff and lay leadership being included. We've also thought about the, dis the diversity of the team so that the team itself will function well in personality and gifting. Of note in this passage is that everyone is, I mean, not everyone, but that when we aspire to be an elder, we aspire a noble task. It's a noble calling that we are to live above reproach so that inside and outside the church, there wouldn't be accusation or grounds for accusation. Um, this faithful to his wife, we'll come back in a second because that's going to be the second part of my, of, of my message this morning. But also elders should be temperate, self-controlled, gentle, not given to rage, not drunkards, not materialistic, but generous with their lives. So in a sense, they're representing the nature of Christ at a mature level, not only to the church, but those outside the church. Able to teach, I think because not only they are good orators or good thinkers, but because they live what they teach. Right? We are able to teach because someone will say, hey, he lives what he's talking about. Um, they are good managers of their family. They, in a sense, people are able to speak about the quality of who they are by looking inside the walls of their house. It's, it's one thing to live well out here, but is our home in order? Because it's where, at home where we are truly known the best. Um, amen. Okay. Back to husband of one wife or faithful to one wife when that, as that passage talks about. So this has been a controversial issue in the church for centuries, one that is debated among equally wise and godly leaders. So in talking about this topic for the next few minutes, hopefully a few, I want you to know it comes from a place in my own life of thorough study, of prayer, of conversation, in the context of our greater movement, uh, I present to you in humility what I believe is uh, the scriptural uh, position on this topic, but I do it recognizing that I could be wrong. And that's important uh, for you to hear me say this, because if you sit in this, the congregation today and you go, I don't agree with him on that passage of scripture, 
my encouragement would be as long as you have thoroughly studied and have discerned through your prayer and study of Scripture where you land, then we can, we can be brothers and sisters in the Lord walking together on this issue, I truly believe. Um, we, as a church, though, have to have a position that we take. Amen? I owe, I owe much of my thought today as well uh, to the overseers of our movement, as well as Dr. Gordon Hugenberger from Park Street has strongly influenced some of my thoughts this morning, as well as studying of other movements, specifically uh, the Evangelical Covenant Church in the area. Some of my thoughts have come from my study of their own doctrinal position on this. I'm not trying to convince anyone of the correctness of my or our interpretation, but I am wanting you to know what we believe so that you know what we are operating under as truth and conviction from the Scripture in this church. I also want to say, in spite of any of the disagreements you may have with what I'm about to say, that my opinion is that there is far more that brings us together and binds us together as Christians than what we see as differences on this topic. Amen? Therefore, I don't believe that this is an issue worth dying for. I don't believe that this is an issue worth dividing over. As a matter of fact, I have walked closely with elders in this congregation where we disagree on parts of the scripture and on this topic, and we've been able to passionately walk together to build this church. Uh, I would say that probably what I'm about to say that even the elders that are candidates might disagree at different points on how I'm about to articulate this, this topic and yet we're going to be able to walk together clearly as elders. Amen? This is not an issue for us to divide over. It's actually an issue for us to, even in our differences, to come together more closely together in unity because we can be unified in our diversity of opinion at times. Amen? It's actually churches that require that you agree with everything that they say that I go, I don't know, you know, because that's a false unity if you have to check your brain at the door or your convictions at the door. Now, at the same time, biblical, biblical convictions are important. What I'm not saying is not to study the Word of God. What, I'm, what I am encouraging is that actually that is one of the points in which we all agree, hopefully, here in the church, is that the Scripture has a high value to us. It is to be studied and honored and revered, and our convictions should be based in the Bible and not based on what I what I tell you or somebody else tells you. But what I speak from the Word of God, you discern between the Lord and yourself and walk with conviction with it so that you don't say, yeah, I believe what Sean believes. I don't want you to believe what I believe. I want you to believe what the Bible teaches you to believe. And if we agree, amen. If we disagree, let's spar in love, but let's walk together in unity. Amen? Okay, that took me longer than I was supposed to take there as well. This could get really long. <laughs> Not worth fighting. A couple of terms I'm going to use this morning. Complementarian and egalitarian. These are the terms that kind of mark the edges of this conversation. A complementarian. We have it up there. Men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage, family life, religious leadership, and elsewhere. The word complementary and its cognates are currently used to denote this complementarian view. So uh, we have different roles and responsibilities in regards to our function in family, marriage, and in church and society. Then an egalitarian view is that it holds that all human persons are created equally in God's sight, equal in both fundamental worth, moral status, and leadership ability. 
As we look at Scripture, no text, I believe, no text demands that a woman be over or head of a man. No text demands that a woman teach a man or an elder. So an egalitarian in our context can stay involved in a complementarian church that does not ordain women elders or allow women to teach in their pulpit and walk in solidarity, even if he or she agrees, because it's not a demand or a command that it happens. Likewise, the scripture, as we will discuss later, presents a redemptive movement from the oppression and a marginalization of women in the cultures of its day, to the one of liberation and equality within society, meaning that when we read Scripture and lay Scripture alongside of the current norms and cultures of that day, women are always much more liberated and much more free in a biblical setting, in a church setting, than they are in the present culture. And so some scholars, and I would refer you to a scholar of Dr. Webb who wrote a book called um, slaves, women, and homosexuals does a great job of, and it's about this thick, I spent whole, a whole summer one year reading it, uh, does a great job of showing this redemptive narrative for, through the beginnings of Scripture all the way to Revelation in marking how God has been at the forefront within culture of redeeming and freeing up people in the context of his relationship with man and woman and the gospel and that God is redeeming more and more as we go through society in time. Um, of note, and then I won't go back to this, and I'll throw out a thorny topic to be discussed later. In that book, he marks the difference between God's redemptive narrative with slaves. We no longer, obviously, we, we don't see slavery as, as redemptive, and women, their liberation, and that of homosexuals, which is a moral static issue that from the beginning of Scripture to the end, God has spoken clearly that homosexuality is not a part or not uh, morally right in his eyes. So when you read that book, you'll see that the redemptive pattern for slaves and women continues to be uh, more liberating, redemptive over the time of history, but not in the issue on the issue of homosexuality in context of how God sees it or views it within Scripture. I strongly believe that there is no need to divide over this issue. We can forbear with the church. We can disagree, but we, also can, be, we can also walk in unity. So what do we agree on? Can we, can we go to what we agree on? Amen. Everybody say hallelujah. What do we agree on? Woo! Let's get excited. Every time you can just look over each other. I, say, I agree on that, don't you? I agree. Just keep on talking. I agree. Do you agree? That's good. Okay, so we agree that our love... For Jesus, we agree that we all love Jesus Christ. Amen? You agree? Right. And that we love his work in our lives. We agree, for, agree in our love for the church and one another. We agree on our love for the word of God and his communication to us, that it directs uh, and inspires and reveals his nature to us in our lives. We agree on our mutual commitment to search out scriptures and to live according to the word of God on this issue. I would also believe it, it's true for me that if anyone can demonstrate that an alternate interpretation is actually more faithful to Scripture, that most of us in this room as believers will readily conform their opinion to that more faithful interpretation of Scripture, right? So we agree that we are wanting to learn what's the most appropriate interpretation of Scripture. In regards to women, here are some things I think we agree on. See if we do. 
I think we agree that, in, that women are inherently worth the same as men, that they are inherently gifted as men are gifted, and that they are inherently equal in the eyes of God. Amen? Galatians 3.26 says this, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is how God sees us. I think we would all agree that uh, we have been created, man and female, male and female, in the image of God. Therefore, we reflect the image of God, as Genesis 1 talks about. We're made of the same stuff. We're one. We're made for each other, and that our differences, uh, though they are many, serve to encourage and help one another. That we are joint heirs in the redemption of Christ, that we're co-beneficiaries of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and His gifts. Are we getting excited? We are so agreeing this morning. Can you believe that you agree so much with one another? This is awesome. We also agree that Colossians 3 is true when it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have grievances against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, we can put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We agree that the peace of Christ should rule in our hearts, since as members of one body we are called to peace and we're called to be thankful. Therefore, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you, this group of people he's talking about, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. I think we agree as we look at this Colossians passage that as he talks about all these things that we are to do, that he's addressing men and women. And then in verse 16, it seems to indicate that one of the things that he, we should be doing is, is teaching and admonishing one another. So we might all agree, and I hope that we all agree, that probably in this room, women can teach men something. For those men that are not saying anything, make sure you don't say anything that will incriminate you. Because <laughs> there are women around you. That we believe that we are to teach one another, as Paul said. And I think that that's a mutual, mutual, reciprocal endeavor. To this text, we could add in this, this context of what does it really look like to teach, we could add uh, different illustrations in Scripture where Abigail rebuked David, where Priscilla, who with her husband Aquila, corrected the theology of Apollos, an apostle. I think that we could agree that women of our day, the Beth Moores and Joyce Myers and Engram Lotts and different ones that have taught in public settings with both men and women, that they did a pretty good job of teaching us. And that there might even be some men in this room who have read their books and learned from them. Likewise, I think that we would acknowledge that worship is a form of teaching and leading our congregation. And would anybody disparage the great worship leading of my wife? This morning, that was a setup. And Tabby and Elaine, would we say, wow, uh, I can't be taught in worship by them because they're women. No, that we'd say, they've done a great job of leading us into the place of worship. Okay, I'm crossing the boundaries. I'm starting to argue my point. So let's get back to what we agree upon. <clears throat> 
We also agree that we have seen the leadership of women in the, uh, by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, such as Deborah. Um, uh, and, and specifically, we have seen women um, used to inspire and write Scripture that's in our Bible, right? So if the Word of God is teaching us, we have Deborah's song in Judge five, Judges 5 teaching us. We have Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 teaching us. We have Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1 teaching us. We never, any of us, men or women, would doubt that that's the authoritative word of God. And yet God used women to teach us all about who he is and his character. No complementarian is offended by this. And no complementarian is offended by these texts being read in public, scripture, public worship services. Even though they're dead, women alive through the word of God are teaching us. And none of us would have a problem with that. And we also see, as I said earlier, women as leaders in the Old Testament. Miriam, Huldah, both prophetesses, and Deborah as a judge. In the New Testament, we, we, we understand that still culturally in the New Testament, women were not educated. They did not take part in public life, but spent most of their lives within the confines of their home. Oftentimes in culture, they were seen as temptations towards sin, They were not normally taken as a part of the census, and their testimony was not accepted in the court of law. Women were not seen as equal in society's status as men were, and yet in Scripture, here we go again, Jesus comes on the scene, and he treats women completely different than the culture was treating women. There's a redemptive narrative that's happening within Scripture. Jesus initiated conversation with women. That's a no-no. He spent time with women. He allowed women to be a part of his discipleship crew that was walking around and ministering to people. Women financed the ministry of Jesus. And in specific instances, like the Samaritan woman, he crossed not only a gender boundary, but he crossed an ethnic boundary to make a point that there is no person off limits in the kingdom of God. And not only are they not off limits, but they are prized and valued in my presence. He goes on in his ministry with Mary, we remember, and we see it as this beautiful little illustration when it says that, and we actually get a little bit frustrated, Martha's serving and Mary's doing what? What does the passage of Scripture say? It says that she sat at his feet and learned of him. Now, if you were living in that culture, you would understand that even the way that that was written in New Testament was was not appropriate because sitting at the feet of a teacher was synonymous with being taught and learned. Learning something educationally. Women didn't do that with men. But Jesus said, let her learn of me. Let her be taught. Why should she be taught? So she could teach others who Jesus was and what his character was, etc., etc. Jesus rebuked not just in the woman caught in adultery. He refused to enforce a double standard where they could stone the woman and set the man free. You know, it takes two to commit adultery. Did you know that? He said, well, why is the woman just here? Because in that culture, the men got away with it, and the women got punished. And he said, this is not good. The man's wrong. You men are wrong. And woman, you're wrong, but you're also forgiven. Go and sin no more. Don't do this again, but be free. Should I go any more on Jesus? Maybe I should, just to let you know that the same word for deacon that's used in Acts 6 is used to describe seven different women that were surrounding Jesus. 
his, Peter's mother-in-law, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, Susanna, Martha, all seen as deacons, ministers in the gospel. We see it in the early church. I'm going to go quickly because I don't know what time it is, but I'm sure it's long because some of you are falling asleep. Okay. We affirm the view of women in the early church, I believe. The book of Acts, uh, that first story as the church was birthed was filled, the upper room was filled with just a bunch of men praying, right? And God anointed the men to go out and do ministry. There were men and women that were in that upper room, and men and women had tongues of fire that landed on their heads, and men and women were speaking boldly the words of God, and men and women were anointed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and men and women led the church. I think we can all agree with that because it's scriptural. I'm starting to argue my point, forgive me. They were also persecuted together in Acts chapter 8. As Greek women and men, they both received the gospel, and it was notated in Acts 17. Back to the Pentecost at Acts 2, that same prophetic verse from Joel 2, where the Spirit of God would be poured out on sons and daughters, and they will prophesy, was re-spoken by Peter to the crowds as an indication that this outpouring of God's Spirit and the, the subsequent gifts, what are the gifts for? To serve and minister, was poured out on men and women as well. Paul's letters, Romans 16 alone, mentions 10 different women who were engaged in various kinds of ministries, from Phoebe, who was described as a deacon, to Priscilla, who was a fellow worker of Paul, to her and her husband being ones that instructed Paulus, I've already mentioned that, to Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis, who were all described as co-laborers of Paul in his ministry, to one of the more specific and important verses for those who take an egalitarian position, which is Junia, who is referred to as an apostle and who has been translated to be a man named Junius. But when you look at the Greek name, Junia, it is only a female name in that culture. We can't find another instance where that name is a male name. And Paul ascribes, if you agree with that, agree with that interpretation, he ascribes to her as an apostle. So we might have, and that's... It's not tremendous proof, just a name. But if it's true, we might have an apostle in the New Testament that was a woman. At least it's open for conversation. The Church of Philippi, started by um, women, Lydia, as well as Judea and Syntyche. So we have a lot of references for women in the New Testament, the Old Testament being not only just equal in image, equal in gift, gifting, gifted, but also equal in ministry and leadership. 1 Timothy, and 3, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, back to these elder qualifications. Faithful to one wife, husband of one wife. It's common practice, and this, I borrow some of these thoughts from Dr. Hugenberger now, it's common practice of the Bible to express legal norms from the male vantage point, meaning that when we give job descriptions in, in the Old and New Testament, or uh, role descriptions, they're almost always, they're always in a male, uh, written from, an, from, a, from a male perspective. For instance, the 10th commandment states, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant. The fact that this text mentions your neighbor's wife rather than your neighbor's husband, and that all the references to you and your throughout the verses are masculine rather than feminine does not mean that this commandment only applies to men. 
women just assume when they read that, that applies to me as well, right? In the Old Testament, every text that offers a job description for an office is presented in an androcentric manner, as is found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, the, the elder requirements. For example, with the office of the prophet in Deuteronomy 18, the office of judge in Deuteronomy 16. The description of the office and prophet, notably in, 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 in number 12, says this, when a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions, to him in visions, I speak to him in dreams. And yet this jo- job description is talking about the prophetess Miriam, who is mentioned in the following scriptures. So we have a male description of the office addressed to a woman. So we're using, we, we see kind of how that works. And lastly, the strongest positive argument for permitting women elders is recognizing that New Testament leadership seems to model Old Testament eldership, not the priesthood. And Old, Te- Old Testament elders, uh, eldership, um, there were no tribal requirements. Uh, Othniel was a, a, a convert of Edom. There were no health requirements like priest. Ehud was handicapped, and in at least one case, there was no gender requirements because Deborah was a judge the leader of Israel. And so we see in 1 Timothy the term elder, much more synonymous with the elder of Old Testament than the priest of an Old Te- in the Old Testament. And in 1 Timothy, I would say one more thing. So I see this as an indication because the rest of the text speaks this way about character. So I don't think the emphasis is on faithful to wife. I think the emphasis is on faithfulness in marriage. And I also don't think because it says wife and or goes on to a lengthy degree to describe to be the manager of your home, that that would, preclude, that would, that would keep any single person, specifically a single man, from being an elder in our church. Nobody would be clamoring over, a, if you were a complementarian, you wouldn't be clamoring over, well, you can't put a single man in because Paul said that you have to be faithful to a wife and you're not married. Most of us wouldn't argue that point if we had a faithful single man. Therefore, I, don't think, I really don't think it's about describing gender, but I think it's, about just, it's describing character in that passage of Scripture. Let's go to headship. Anybody need a break? Turn to somebody next to you and say, man, he's doing a great job. He is doing a great job. I need all the help I can get. If you have to lie on this one, go ahead and lie, and then we'll repent at the altar later. Just, you know, Lord, I'm just repenting because I lied to my neighbor. Woo, we're having fun. Yeah, it's a party. Okay. I don't even know where I am now. I'm having so much fun. Okay. Headship, thank you. So this is where we stand. Did I already say this? But if I haven't, I'll state clearly. This is where... Uh, there are so many different ways in which churches land, land on this issue. But as I study Scripture, our movement uh, stands this way. Our, this, the, our movement, meaning the broader Antioch movement, as well as this church, we endorse or we promote a view of Scripture that communicates complementarianism in the home and egalitarianism in the church, meaning that there is... Uh, it's hard to argue from my perspective looking at Scripture that when we talk about the family, there is a leadership that God puts on a husband to, to lead. Now, what that leadership looks like is very different than the way that we derive leadership in our society, and I'm going to touch on that in a second. But there is, I, I believe every organization needs a leader. Every team needs a leader. 
And I think that God ordained it in Scripture to place that, that position of responsibility, of service on the man as the leader of the home. But I can't argue, and nor does our movement argue, that that is true for the church. Um, I do believe that God has opened up the opportunity for women to lead at any, at any level within the church if they're qualified according to the context of Timothy and Titus that we just looked at in Scripture, in character, in capacity, uh, as is discerned by the present elders or leadership of the church at that time. So to headship in the home first. We already read Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. I believe that when God created men and man and woman, that he created them uniquely different. It doesn't take much for us to recognize that there's differences between men and women. And I'm not going to go into a whole segment of that. We could do that. But scientifically, specifically, we are different human beings. And actually, our society is promoting a blurring of that difference so that we can promote other agendas. But to the, to, the, to the loss of society, that we would eliminate femininity and or masculinity and their different, their, their different strengths and weaknesses from the conversation in our culture. Shame on us that we would, uh, we would denigrate somebody's actual being just so that we can make a point. The point is, is that we are beautifully created as men and women. We are beautifully unique and different. And that God designed it that way. And if we didn't have women, we'd be in trouble. If we didn't have men, we'd be in trouble. We need each other. And that's how God has designed it. And he designed it from the very beginning. And he said there in that passage of Scripture that man, and, and I won't go into it, but Adam was alone. And God made someone suitable to walk with him in his aloneness so that he would, they would not be alone anymore and in their uniqueness so that they could help one another, so that they could co-create and co-rule, I believe, uh, this world. That's how he's created us. Ephesians 5 says this about, and, 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 and so back to, so we'll talk about this word head. Look at Ephesians 5. We'll read the passage of Scripture, and then we'll, we'll, we'll unpack this definition. Submit to one another, and that's very important. Some, I, I don't know why some passages, uh, some translations remove verse 21 from 22. There's no reason in the context of that passage that they should be removed. These are, this, this is the beginning of this, this little section, I believe, that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is a savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so, as, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then verse 28, just to kind of clarify what this looks like. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, wife loves himself. This word head, kafale, um, is, it means... There's two different interpretations, and there's all kinds of debate on this actual word, and this is where um, some of this conversation goes. But the two meanings for this word, primarily in the context of the New Testament, is leader. And then there is also a definition that could be the source of life or the source of origin. And I believe, just in the, in the context of reading this passage of Scripture, along with 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Peter 3, that this word head especially because of the proponents of how it's used within Scripture, means leader. And that's okay. 
Because that's how God has ordained it in the home, that they would lead. Now, what are they supposed to look like when they lead? Well, the way that Jesus led the church. How did Jesus lead the church? He came with a big stick, and he started beating people over the head with it. He put people in their place and told them where they belonged. He exerted extreme authority and ruled with a heavy hand and said, bring me my dinner. That's how... I know him. He's in trouble. No. He didn't do that. How did he, how did he head the church? The scripture says it. He laid down his life. I was talking about this in the context of a small group one day, and we were kind of at odds in, on this conversation. And an egalitarian in the, in the room, as, after I read that and said that, she said, well, if he led that way, I'd be a complementarian. If he laid down his life like that, if, it was actually, if he actually loved the way that he was called to lead, then I would, I would more willingly submit. Well, that's not really the teaching of Scripture, um, how we should respond to this past Scripture. We, would, we should say... If this is true, that men are to lead, then men should lead in this way, and this is how it functions beautifully, not only laying down our lives for one another and for our bride and the family, but mutually submitting to one another, as the first part of that scripture says. So someone will ask me, what does complementarianism look like in your home? I'll say it looks like an egalitarian's home, except at the end of the day, if we have to make a decision where we are at odds with one another and we can't make a decision, my wife will say, Okay, you make a decision. No, she doesn't say that. <laughs> then, I, then I will lead out as I need to. But in practicality, because my first step in Scripture is to submit to my wife, isn't that what ter- verse 21 says? As my wife submits to me, then in reality, we are walking equal footing, conquering the world together as this little tribe of rich men. So it should be for you, in my opinion. So we move to one of the more controversial con- con- uh, scriptures in re- relation to women leading in the church, 1 Timothy 2. And I'm not going to read the whole passage of scripture, but I'll look at the, you can later, but I'll look at the, uh, the, um, the key verse in, in relation to our conversation. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. And again, here I'm going to lean on Dr. Hugenberger's um, explanation. I'm going to actually show it to you because I really do believe that in the context of this view of women in the church being um, used throughout Scripture from Deborah on as equal uh, uh, leaders and ministers within the church, that his, his assessment, his scholarly assessment is really good. And Dr. Hugenberger is a longtime pastor. He just retired at Park Street Church, but also is an esteemed theologian at Gordon-Conwell Seminary whose thinking is way beyond my thinking um, and his study way beyond my study on this topic. But he says the Greek terms for man and woman in this, this text, that, that this text uses, can be, be either used as man or husband, woman or wife. <clears throat> For this reason, some English Bibles, such as the once popular Williams translation, rendered 1 Timothy 2 as husband and wife instead of man and woman. He said, it's, striking, it's a striking fact that within Paul's writings, apart from 1 Timothy 2, the Greek word for man, husband, occurs 50 times, woman, wife, 54 times, in close proximity within 11 distinct contexts, and in every case, 
these terms bear the meaning husband and wife rather than man and woman. So if you'll look with me, he, he juxtaposes 1 Timothy 2 with 1 Peter 3, which is, everybody agrees, is a husband and wife passage of Scripture. And if you could see this, we weren't able to put it on the screen the way that you can see it, but he parallels these Scriptures into three three distinct sections, and when you look at these three sections together and you translate 1 Timothy 2 as husband and wife instead of man and woman, it's striking the parallel of teaching that's going on in these two passages of Scripture. And so his point and my point after studying this and thinking about it from the context of what I, what I feel like Scripture is teaching is that 1 Timothy, one of the passages is used to silence women as teachers in the church to not allow teachers to be promoted in authority over men, and since men are in the church, then therefore they can't have authority over men. He is saying, and I believe as well, that 1 Timothy 2 is not a woman's role in ministry passage of Scripture, but it's a marriage role Scripture, that it's in the context of marriage. Therefore, I want husbands everywhere to pray, lifting up hands likewise. Um, uh, I want them to adorn themselves with proper dress. And in verse 11, a wife should learn quietness and full submission. I do not permit a wife to teach, that is, to boss her husband. She must um, respect him or be, do, be, so in, be quiet. We could have a whole other teaching on what that means in the context of today. That's, but, but for sake of time, I think that that argument, that that is in relation to the church, is really relegated to the, the role of the family. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 11, same, same thing. That is uh, uh, a marriage context uh, as well. Women should remain silent in the churches. Um, oh, I'm sorry, that's the next passage of Scripture. And then our last one, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 36. And, and specifically back to 11, for some reason I lost my text. So here it is. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Hugenberger would argue that that is, again, not man and woman, but wife and husband. I want you to realize that the head of every husband is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Lastly, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 36, but back to 1 Corinthians 11, remember that in that passage of Scripture, we also see mutual submission. If you look through that passage of Scripture, we are mutually submitted to one another because we are linked to one another as men and women men and women and husband and wives, and you also see women prophesying in the church. Lastly, 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, we're getting to the end. It's my last page. Everybody said, amen. We're going to get to eat lunch today. 14 verses 26 through 36 is the end of this passage of worship and orderly worship that we talked about in May. And we talked about that what was going on in the Corinthian church at the time is that there was a lot of disorder in the church. Remember, they were speaking in tongues without interpretation. They were eating their communion meal without each other. They were showing hierarchy in their church setting. There was all kinds of crazy stuff going on. There's disorder. And Paul was setting it in order. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 14 is the end of this section. And he sums up that we need to prophesy in order, we, the church, we need to do things in order. And then he puts this passage of Scripture in the middle of that last section where he says, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must, ta- must, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And I, again, think that this is a wife and husband situation instead of a woman. But specifically in this context, 
what we can discern from the passage of Scripture is that there's some kind of questioning the authority or the, the teaching of their husbands, and there's some kind of banter going on, and Paul is saying, listen, this isn't appropriate here. Do that at home. And actually, the at home was a rebuke to what was going on in church, but it was also an admonition, I believe, hey, it's good for wives to be learning, which was con- contrary to culture. It's good for this to be happening. Just let it happen at home and don't make it a disorderly thing in the church. That would be my understanding of this context of Scripture. Again, I don't think this passage of Scripture um, keeps women from being leaders and elders in the church. Remember the context of which we were writing, we were, we've been talking about. That is my quick survey. You can set up an appointment with me to talk more specifically about texts that you felt like I need to go into deeper analysis on or that you disagree on. I'm totally open to that. But I share all that to say this is where we are in agreement as a movement. This is where we are in agreement as a church. And this is where I am leading us as a pastor today as we invite you to give feedback on our installation of elders. Because we are going to present to you today both men and women as elder candidates. So with that, I would like to introduce to you our candidates. I'd like for them to stand up when I mention their name and remain standing. And then I want to give you as a congregation, in light of the character qualifications of 1 Timothy and Titus, the the roles and responsibilities of an elder, your own perception of their lives, I want to give you an opportunity for the next couple of weeks to bring feedback if you have. If you have any, as a member of this church, if you feel like that one of the candidates that we're presenting is not a qualified candidate, you can share that with us. Even better, if you think that they're awesome, you can write me emails, and, and you can write with in caps if you'd like to. I really like this candidate! With a lot of exclamation points, you can do that as well. But we're going to give you some time to feedback, especially if you have concern. Um, and then we will discern um, as a leadership team uh, take, into your, take into account the things that you're communicating, and then in a couple of weeks we will let you know who our elders are. Does that sound good? Okay. Um, our, my recommendation, our recommendation is that our elder candidates at this time will be David Pucci. David Pucci is not here, but you've seen David at the end of our service. Um, Brendan Hollingsworth. Stand up, Brendan. Stay standing. Sarah Yoon. Sarah Yoon, stand up. Uh, Jesse Prickett. And myself. So uh, David Pucci, as well as these three candidates, and myself are your elder candidates for you to feedback uh, to us about. So please do that. So as they remain standing, could you reach out a hand around them and pray for them? Because even having their name in the candidate pool puts them in a place of vulnerability. Um, it, uh, especially if, if feedback comes in that's challenging their position as an elder, but also if we affirm them as elders, and we'll do this again when we install them, it places them in a new role of capacity and, and leadership that they have not been walking in. And as you pray for them, pray for yourself. So if you could do this, you don't have to, but pray for yourself. Lord, may I walk in unity and support. If I'm to be a part of this church, may I walk in agreement in my spirit with love and fidelity with the leadership of the church. So would you pray? Just take a few minutes to pray over them.
Lord, this is, an, this is a um, reverent time. Lord, for a number of reasons, Lord, we take it seriously that we discern, but you initiate elders to be elders in the church, that you have positioned, uh, I believe, these men and women uh, to be uh, leaders of your church, to help discern um, the direction of the church, to guard the doctrine of the church, to walk in loving discipline and authority within the church, to teach, to exhort, to serve, to pray for the church, and to lay their lives down to serve the church. And so, Lord, it's a heavy responsibility. It's an honoring responsibility. I know that when I invited each one of these to consider it, they were all humbled and uh, in, in, in so many ways communicated uh, a reverence for the position and whether or not they were worthy to even to hold this office. So there's humility in this group, and I thank you for that. So, Lord, would you affirm through the voice of the church and through uh, the, the affirmation of your spirit, would you affirm the candidates that are to be elders here at Antioch Waltham? And may the result be that the church is stronger, the church is more fruitful, the church is in line with who you are, and that we'd walk in unity in the spirit. We pray these things because we need you and we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him one more hand. All right, this concludes the scholarly sermon today of your pastor. We're going to conclude today just by doing that. But what I would encourage you to do as we do every Sunday here at Antioch Community Church is greet one another heartily. Uh, love on somebody before you leave. Don't run out the door, but let, let people around you know that you care about them. Pick up your kids if you're a parent. Uh, rescue, rescue those workers, and we'll see you back uh, this week in a small group or next